Welcome to the Epic Podcast Miniseries in anticipation of the upcoming 2022 Epic Conference in Amsterdam from October 9th through the 12th. I'm your host, Matt Arts, and in this miniseries, we will explore the conference theme of resilience and other salient questions about the practice of ethnography and what it means to build a community. I'll be joined by guests from around the world who are either part of the conference committee or presenters. Hope you enjoy. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Epic Podcast miniseries. I'm here today with Jillian Powers and Todd Carmody. Uh, Jillian is with J.P. Morgan Chase and Responsible AI, and Todd is a senior strategist with Gemic. We'll be talking about the theme in a little bit more detail today, and of course, we'll also be talking about uh, Jillian and Todd's papers at the upcoming conference, as well as their overall impressions and you know maybe some recommendations for everybody out there who's listening. So, uh, Jillian and Todd, thanks again for joining. Um, Jillian, would you mind maybe starting just giving a brief introduction about your background and how you came to Epic? Sure. Um, nice to see you, Matt. Nice to see you, Todd. It's great to be here. Good morning, everyone. Um, afternoon and evening, if you are listening. So how did I discover Epic? Well, um, I started off working at Red Associates, and a lot of Red Associates people are super into Epic. And so that's how I discovered this um, new uh, place, this new sort of corporate home for business anthropologists and sociologists. So I'm a sociologist by training. I have a PhD from Duke. And um, now I work in business. And so that's how I discovered Epic. It's a nice sort of home for people who do qualitative methods um, in more strategic and business settings. And Todd? Uh, yeah, so my background is in um, cultural history. I'm a, a PhD historian by training. Um, recently made the transition about a year and a half ago into the business world. And um, Epic was actually really uh, fundamental from an outsider's perspective to my transition, sort of getting to, getting to understand what, um, what qualitative research in uh, the private sector looks like and um, getting a better sense of how kind of my interests and expertise and skills and passions could find a home somewhere outside of the academy. Um, so Epic was really kind of uh, sort of instrumental, actually, me making the jump. It's great to hear. And so out of curiosity, were you attending previous conferences or were you looking in on the content that was being posted? Most of the content that was being posted. And so this is your first that you're attending? This is my first that I'm attending, yes. Wonderful. Oh, very nice. And um, so, so you both have papers. Um, Todd, I'm going to start with you because Jillian, yours is, uh, you know, references resiliency sort of outright. Uh, and I have a feeling that will sort of point us in a, in a future direction here. So, Todd, uh, yours is titled Jobs Not to Be Done, Anti-Work Politics and the Resilience of Mutual Aid. So tell me, let's start with yours and, and kind of understand, uh, you know, where you're coming from and how, you, how you're bringing the theme into your work. Great. Yeah, I guess I wouldn't say I'd start by saying I don't think the paper is exactly for re resilience either, but we'll get into that. So what my paper is really trying to do is to take a strand of recent kind of critical theory around anti-work politics and culture and see how that might be applied um, to the work that we do as ethnographers in industry. And essentially, this is a really interesting body of work that um, would have us read sort of the great resignation of the past uh, couple of years as less about folks trying to make work more meaningful and to find better kinds of work than actually just trying to work less and to find work to define life outside of work. And so what I wanted to do in this paper is to think about how we might take some of these lessons from this body of theory and apply it to the work that we do in um, more corporate settings. And I, to do that, I, I focus, sort of provide an overview of this theory, where it's coming from. And I think it's really important to kind of take the long, it's a anti-work uh, thinking as is kind of flashy in the moment, but there's a really long and interesting history 
that I think that we first need to understand why we understand why we want work to be so meaningful and we insist that all work has some kind of inherent value. And once we begin to sort of pull on that thread a little bit, then we get to see that there are interesting ways that we can um, kind of rethink the core concept of resilience. So for me, I think that there are lots of ways that coming at the idea of what resilience is, but I think that always sort of lingering in the background is the idea that we should be more resilient in how we um, how we live our lives, how we work, how we find kind of our position in the world. And I think that taking anti-work politics on board and then looking particular at my case studies all have to do with mutual aid projects during um, the COVID pandemic. There we get to see a different kind of idea of what resilience might look like if you take work out of the question. It's not a matter of being happy at work. It's not a matter of making your life more fulfilling or more uh, sustainable, but actually maybe about working less or defining yourself outside of work. And so for the, the crux of my paper then is to show how we can, we can begin to import some of the ideas from this kind of um, arcane body of theory on anti-work politics by looking at the example of mutual aid organizing during COVID. And so, you know, in the in the description from Epic of the theme for this year, they talk about learning and adapting and evolving. Uh, and so how do you see those sort of specific concepts coming into this? I guess those are those are those are core concepts for me. I think that um, in terms of what I take away from sort of the mutual aid projects that I'm looking at is working to define resilience maybe away from kind of um, learning as such, but learning to kind of make do, learning to, 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 um, to adapt to your environment, and maybe more around questions of um, what you might like to do. So less freedom from a particular kind of force, freedom from work, but freedom to do something. What do you need outside there to actually be able to realize those ambitions? And so maybe learning as a concept might be a little bit too limited. To understand or adaptation as a concept is too limited to understand some of the, I think, some of the more deeper desires about what it means to be resilient in ways that don't sort of tie you into work. So it seems like, you know, we have these desires to maybe do some other things, uh, but of course we need sort of the, you know, the job to, in some cases, fund those unless, you know, we can, can really turn those into something that is sustainable in itself. So how are you seeing people balance these sort of competing desires? You know, you sort of need to be present at the job, need to be doing your thing to really fund maybe the interests. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's really well said. I feel like um, in the mutual aid societies that I was looking at, the mutual, mutual aid organizations um, during the COVID era, I certainly saw people who were working full-time jobs and finding that the real meaningful work they were doing was outside of that and that it had less to do with um, getting what, getting out of work what you put in. So this idea of uh, reciprocity, that you only get out of work what you put in. You have to work harder to get more out of it or find a better position where you're getting as much out of work as you're putting in. And so maybe setting that to one side and then to looking to other kinds of activities that don't have to do with reciprocity. It's more about meeting someone's needs where they are and being part of a community. And so I feel that um, what I see kind of happening in the mutual aid world is a move away from the individual at work, getting in what he, she, they put into work, moving more towards the community-based model where it's about recognizing folks' needs and feeling the kinds of connection. And so that one way to do that is to say, well, I'm going to do the job. And I think that in the, I think in the discourse right now, we're hearing a lot about quiet quitting. That seems to be very much part of that idea of just doing your work to do the work, 
but then fi- defining yourself outside of work in other ways that are less about getting out what you put in and more about establishing these connections with people by recognizing needs. So I would like to maybe come back to some of that because I'm also curious to hear if, if you learned anything about how corporations or you know employers are viewing some of these outside activities because of course many of them become present on social. Um, but before doing that, I'd like to maybe just pivot and bring um, Jillian in just to see how you know her work may or may not be similar. Um, so Jillian, what's your stance on resiliency, the theme, and, and could you tell us a little bit about your paper? Definitely. Um, I love Todd's paper. This is great. Um, we definitely reference mutual aid in our paper. And our the paper really came up because uh, my collaborator and I, my co-writer, Lauren Rhodes, we were having a conversation when we discovered about the theme of resiliency. And we're like, wait, we're tired. I'm tired of being resilient. I'm tired of having to deal with this. I'm tired of having to work this hard. I'm tired of having to go into the field, spend six hours with people, and then have no one understand how um, emotionally and physically draining ethnography is. Right? All of those things were the, the, the impetus for this paper. We are just tired. Everyone is tired. Um, we are all overworked. We are all overspent. We are living in times of precarity. And I don't want to be resilient anymore. I want to be soft. Right? I want people to be able to have community. I want us to be able to have joy. Right? As Todd was talking, I was just thinking about all the memes that you can see around this right now, where it's like, I don't want a job. I want a field in the country. Right? Like, I want cottagecore. I want all of these new things in my life because I don't want to have this grind. This grind culture is destroying us. Like We're living in a very, very hard time right now. We're living through this um, whether you want to call it late stage capitalism, end stage capitalism, we could have a whole conversation about that. But resiliency in these moments, um, just in our paper, we argue that it just reifies the status quo. Like, what are we resilient to? What are we resilient in? And how does that shape how we engage in ethnography and also live as ethnographers? So that's really what our paper is about. How in the moments of ethnography, we can find ways to not just sort of promote resiliency, but promote vulnerability and mutual aid. How can we be together with our respondents and our participants, our collaborators, our co-conspirators, and also our clients, right? So how do we call everyone in to understand um, how hard this work can be, how draining this work can be. Also, what we're asking from people who are so graciously giving us their time. So that's really where our paper goes, how it's called you know, Against Resiliency and Ethnographic Manifesto, because we're really thinking here, how can ethnography be our way out and in? How could we think about ethnography as a method of engagement, um, a method of embodied engagement, and bring that sense of vulnerability to it so that we don't have to be so resilient all the time? Because it's tiring. I'm drained, right? So that's really where our paper goes. I guess as you you went through all of that, a uh, you know, question that popped out was, uh, who's asking everybody to be resilient in the first place? Um, you know, is I don't know if either of you, you came across this in, in any of your work, but you know, who do you think really places that sort of uh, that responsibility on everybody. Yeah. Well, if you look at the resiliency literature, it really hits in sort of two or three main trends. You see resiliency in a lot of like systems design. Um, you see it in a lot of this idea of like supply chain work. We want to build resilient supply chains, resilient business processes. And that's really about hazards and risk, understanding where new hazards are coming from. We have a lot of more environmental catastrophe happening. So how could we keep um, supply chains going? Right. We see this right now. There was a possible rail strike in the United States. We see this with grain supplies because of the, the war in Ukraine. So that's one train of the resiliency literature. But the train we're really fighting against is what we do when we label human beings as resilient. It is not surprising and it is not uh, 
uh, the, the, the subjects who are labeled resilient also understand who is doing that, right? We label women resilient. We label minorities resilient. We label people who are experiencing scarcity environments resilient. And so it really is a label of the powerful to place upon the powerless to understand how they navigate systems of disruption, which make it really challenging, right? Like, again, we are reifying um, marginalized populations' approaches to living within scarcity environments, and that's a little bit problematic. So um, just to bounce back, Todd, for a second, so building on that, I wonder, you know, even if people are, you know, in, in your work, if they're putting in essentially what they're getting out, right, and that's maybe more equitable, and then they're using some of that, you know, energy, desire, passion to work on like a true passion play on the side, do those extra activities contribute to them actually needing to be resilient in the kind of classical, you know, human sort of focused literature that Julian is just speaking about? Like, does it actually change the equation? Hmm, that's a really interesting question. I mean, I, would, I think I would say yes, that you could see sort of um, kind of a misbalance, then putting all your eggs in one basket and then needing to be as resilient in his work as, as, as hard as possible and to, to be able to sort of basically fund those other um, kinds of activities. And so that's, that leads, of course, to kind of a schizophrenic sort of organization of your own personality that can be trying in itself and I think raises a lot of other kinds of questions about whether that that model of resilience is sustainable in the end. For me though, I it also another I think I'd add another strain of, of resilience literature to the or the train to the to what Jillian was saying, and that is to do with the, the kind of the managerial literature on resilience. And there I think we're seeing something actually quite the opposite happening, as opposed to there being a bifurcation and saying do your passion work on one side and that's where you kind of can cultivate your humanity and then you just sort of bracket that all for the moment that you come to work and then take care of the basics there. There's a long trend since the 1970s of wanting your to bring your whole soul, self into work and to be able to find fulfillment in what you do, to just be yourself, to be authentic, to um, to create space for yourself to flourish at work as a person, as a whole person. And so that seems kind of actually sort of the opposite of, of this, this, this schizophrenic model of, of maybe um, bracketing all of your, your real human desires and your passions. But actually, one of the, the models of, of resilience that we're all th I think we're all working in is this idea that your passion should inform your work, that you should bring your passions and your whole person to the work. And that in itself can be, I think it's seductive. I think it can be really enjoyable in a lot of ways. But I think there's also something kind of overwhelming about that, of having sort of the onus is placed on you to feel that you can realize your full self at work and to bring all of your passions to work. And that in itself is an extra pressure to sort of show that you're resilient like that, that you are a full human being, that you are a fully realized person in your place of work. So, uh, Jillian, I see you're shaking your head, so I'm going to come back to you in just a second here. But one comment is like, um, you know, even if you want to sort of uh, bring your passion to work, there are many people who simply just for lots of reasons don't end up in the job that they would be passionate about. Uh, or you might end up in a job where you are stretched, you know, like maybe you're actually in a research job and you're, you know, you're, you're doing good ethnographic work 
you know, but maybe nobody appreciates it at the organization or, you know, right. And, you know, there's, there, there could be all kinds of, uh, stressors in the environment, um, that still make it not so fulfilling, you know, even if you are really trying your best to do that, I guess. Right. And, and so Jillian, um, any thoughts on that? Um, I think it's, so there's, I want to take this in two strains. Number one, the way that work intersects with resiliency, um, right? It's this commodity model of thing. How about we just build you an app? We'll build you a wellness app so that you can be more resilient. We'll have some um, programming that you have to now take time out of your eight to 10 hour day to spend time doing a resiliency breathwork training, right? How are we supposed to manage all of this at our jobs when we also have to get our job done, right? So the challenge is, is how resiliency shows up at work in these very superficial ways. But I want to take this back to this idea of passion, because we all are trained in this way and we all are passionate about what we do, which is engaging with people, which is understanding culture, which is understanding the human experience. And that's such a privilege. And so then when we take that into a workplace, sometimes we might feel a little bit dejected. It might be really hard for us because all of a sudden that passion is now in service to a corporate outcome a business outcome, a strategic outcome. But it's still a privilege to think through these things. It's still a privilege to bring this type of uh, uh, methodology to bear. But it's a really hard space to be in as an ethnographer, um, especially people who are just coming out of, let's say, PhD programs who are jumping into their first job, to start, to start thinking about what that means to do um, ethnography at work, to use embodied small sample qualitative methods at work. And we have to think about that too, because there is such a human experience of the type of work that we do and it's draining a wellness app is not going to like sustain me it's not going to refill me after a moment like that so what um what are you doing in your role and you know how are you trying to help your team through this that's great. So I, um, I'm a, I, I work in responsible AI now at JP Morgan Chase, and I work with ethicists, which means that we take these things very, very seriously. So one of our first activities as a team was to think about how do we work ethically? What does it mean to show up for each other? I think that's incredibly important. I've been very lucky in my time in business that I've had pretty good managers who understood what it means to protect my time and my space and my thinking time. So that's what we really try to do. We really try to articulate the value of slow work under fast deadlines. We try to articulate the value and the importance of the analysis part of things, right? We understand, or maybe some of our clients are, um, will understand that you know, we have to take the time to interview people, to do our labs, our focus groups. But then the analysis part of it gets lost in that conversation, how much time it takes to review that material, to understand the human experience out of that. And so what we really try to do is focus on the amount of labor it takes us to get the work done, how challenging some of that emotional work can be, but also how beautiful it is, right? And how what a privilege it is to be able to be that type of person in a business environment. Yeah, thanks. And, and Todd, you, you seem to be kind of shaking your head and taking a note there of something you wanted to build on. or Yeah, no, that really resonates with me. Because I think earlier what I heard Jillian saying and talking about what makes what makes the, the work that we do often so so draining and so depleting at times is a lack of kind of recognition and sort of seeing like you come out of the field and, and feel that there's nothing, there's no way to kind of make the work that you've done in the field kind of legible. And I find that teamwork and team space and building a good kind of team um, uh, a sort of a coherent uh, and cohesive team can really be one way to kind of to combat that and to say because that's that for me is where that that moment of recognition happens is in the team and sharing insights and ideas and and being able to do that kind of slow work under fast deadlines really is um, I think very key and it is that the question for me is is oftentimes how to translate the moments of recognition and support 
and cohesiveness that happen on a team to a client or to out, more outward facing kinds of spaces. And that for me is another kind of, uh, another sort of hurdle is, is to, 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 I guess, sort of uh, to scale that kind of um, resiliency that you have on the team. Yeah. And so that's, uh, I think, maybe a great, great uh, point to orient us forward here. So, you know, you can build a great team, as you say, but scaling that is is one challenge and potentially helping, you know, others in the organization uh, embody this perspective and have an appreciation for the, the type of work we're doing is a complete other. And so, you know, if they are not ethicists, ethnographers, people of maybe like-minded perspectives, do you see this changing? You know, how are you trying to change it? You know, how are we going to actually, you know, push back against this, uh, push on us to kind of continually work and, and, and be resilient? I think we just have to be honest with where we're at and be brave enough to say these things in public to our teams, ourselves, our clients, our collaborators, and our stakeholders. Um, we're not always going to be, we're not always going to have a good day, right? That happens. What I really try to do in the ethnography work that I do is really bring people along on that process. It's not always easy. It's not always pretty. Sometimes it's messy. Sometimes it's ugly. Sometimes it's draining. And my clients, my collaborators, my team members, and even other people who are in my organization should understand that because they're feeling it too. This idea that we're the only people who hold these types of perspectives in our heads because we're ethnographers, it's not true. We just have the words, the language, and the methodology to explore it and understand it. And so being able to provide that um, that consciousness raising, I think, is incredibly important. I see that as part of our job. It's not just working with um, our respondents or our collaborators. It's expanding the field of our ethnography itself and looking at our clients in that lens, too. Whenever I talk to new ethnographers, whenever I talk to people who are out of their PhD, I'm like, keep your ethnography eyes on. When clients push back about deadlines and they push back about your insights and your findings, or they, they, they don't want to believe what you're trying to tell them, put your ethnography eyes on. Why are they thinking that way? What are they bringing to that engagement that's making them a little bit more reactive and um, dismissive maybe or confrontational. So I think it's really expanding the scope of what we think is our ethnographic field can really help us bring more people into that conversation and maybe shift more minds. Yeah, that really resonates with me. I mean, the idea of, of um, seeing pushback or pressure as an opportunity to, to think about how where someone else sits in their own kind of relationship between work and resiliency and what kind of pressures stakeholders uh, might be feeling do we all have a better understanding of what the what might be preventing them from from taking the, the kinds of recommendations that we're making that seems really really important to me i also want to sort of circle back to the idea of the, the sort of the privilege of the position that we're in and being able to to have this discourse this language to be um, and have the space quite honestly to to think about um, a lot of these issues this is something that, that um, I think a lot of my field work recently has brought um, home to me and thinking about um, with participants and respondents about their engagements with work, the kind of work that they do. And we'd spoken earlier about um, uh, sort of the, the question of fulfillment. And it seems a little bit vexed for folks, sort of um, professionals in our in our area, to be thinking about the kind of fulfillment or lack of fulfillment in our work. and especially when we think about other kinds of labor that are out there. And I think that's, that's really important to sort of to bear in mind and to kind of bridge those kinds of conversations and think about how what seems to us like a privilege, it certainly is, and a luxury that it is, to be able to have these conversations and to be able to imagine the kind of work that would be more fulfilling and to have the conversations about what would it mean to actually strive for that 
to take that kind of that sort of perspective and to think about what folks who are working in 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 the trades, um, for instance, or in um, manual labor, or folks who don't have the kind of the sort of the the intellectual space to do this sort of thinking. But the pressures, no the pressures. I think this is something that maybe just to take it back to my paper a little bit. This is something that uh, we've been taught exists across the board. Whether you're a bricklayer or a strategist, you are supposed to find kind of fulfillment and resilience in your work, right? So that all work has meaning, no matter what it is. And I think it's, so I, uh, in the field, am very conscious about wanting to respect, understand the the sort of the very particular differences and of the work that people do and the demands that this place on them, but how we're all sort of living in a space where there's the expectation this work should be meaningful. And then the third sort of wrinkle, um, if you will, on top of that is that some of the, some of us have an easier time of making, being able to imagine our work as meaningful than others do, but we all have the same sort of pressure to sort of find ourselves in our work. Yeah, that really resonates. I think it's it's also important to think past the dignity of work, which I think is so important, especially the work I do now with AI, right? A lot of the work I do is involved employee productivity algorithms, and you can't see this in a podcast, but I'm doing air quotes around productivity. <laughs> so what you see there, though, is like we are trying to automate certain parts of people's jobs away, right? But as we're thinking about that, we have to also remind ourselves, where do people find dignity at work? How do we provide people with a chance from a bricklayer to a strategist to have expertise and a sense of ownership of their day, right? We have to give people autonomy and community in the work that we do. And I think that's really why the theme of resiliency was so challenging to us, because I don't want to be resilient anymore. I want community and autonomy, right? It'll We, we wind up like... By focusing on resiliency, we are allowing a broken system to continually grind us down instead of thinking about where can we provide people with a sense of agency in their life and community in their life. And this goes with our with work, but also um, with every other part of their life, right? A lot of the work that we do also involves like healthcare research. And this is a big challenge, at least personally for me doing healthcare research, because I find it really personally draining because our healthcare system is completely broken in America. And so how do we think about how we can move past resiliency to find connection? We are only in people's lives for a brief moment. How can we make that more sustainable for ourselves and for the people who are giving us their time, as well as our clients, so that we can all get something out of this, even if it's for a brief moment? And so any sort of methodological you know, innovations in that space that you see as opportunities for us? I found a lot of joy. Um, our first project post or during COVID was really, really hard for us. So I, I work I work at JP, uh, JP Morgan Chase um, now, but I was working for Idea Couture before. And we were, tr- we were working to translate all our methods to more digital versions. And it was, it was hard, right? How do you keep that emotional tenor when you have a mediated uh, interaction? And so what we did as a team was we really tried to focus on more touch points, asynchronous connections, and then really try to get um, have deeper conversations over a, over a longer period of time. So we really try to use those methods to create more inroads into experience. Um, it was challenging, it was hard, but it was probably one of the most um, enriching and supportive and thoughtful projects that I have ever worked on. Because during a hard time for everyone, which was a like which was a pandemic, we were talking to people who are dealing with end of life care for a loved one, and that intersection allowed us to have a lot of really good conversations. And 
also thinking about how you can extend that relationship. So it's not just a one and done. It's um, texting a respondent after the fact to see how they were doing. It's saying thank you for being honest in this slab where it was really challenging for you to, to, to be, be hear something, right? It's really then thinking about how you can show up for a person. Sometimes it's just really good to validate someone's experience. I always start um, uh, interviews with, this is your opportunity to be heard, to tell someone about your experience. My job is to share that up. My job is to make sure that you are heard in these moments. And that's a very powerful thing to do. Really understand then where people are coming from, the limitations of our methods too, right? We're not going to be able to get everything and we're not going to understand everything because we also have to understand our own positionality in the field. We come from very comfortable lives. We live very comfortable lives. You go to very nice jobs most of the time. So understanding where our positionality also might in interact and impact what we're hearing and seeing. Todd, maybe last thing I'm wondering, do you, in your paper, do you wrap up with any specific um, recommendations. I think, Jillian, we've already heard some from you, but is, is there anything that, that you're sort of leaving everybody with in the paper that you'd want to maybe share here? So the um, the paper ends by sort of moving from this anti-work kind of theory and then through uh, mutual aid initiatives, and then really turning to think about Gen Z, and Gen Z in particular is um, a generation that, that I've seen in a lot of my recent work is really grappling with the questions of what might my life look like without work. And there, one of the things that I'm really, I've really come across is that um, it's very clear if you think about, um, I do a lot of thinking about um, sort of the waning of authority in our culture and sort of the, 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 the pillars of trust and institutions that used to be provide us with a lot of meaning have begun to seem less and less um, relevant and less and less important. And there isn't, doesn't seem to be, we're not sort of grounded in the same way around sort of these institutions that tell us what's what and what isn't um, worth thinking. And for Gen Z, sort of thinking about how to make meaning in their lives, this is, in a lot of my work with, with social tech, this is, these are really relevant questions for thinking about the, the spread of misinformation. And so what I've been really thinking a lot about in the paper is trying to make the connection at the, at the very end is to think about work as one of those institutions. And once you take work out of the question and start to think that maybe work isn't as meaningful as, um, as I once thought, and maybe that I, it's not going to give shape my life in the way it, it, it is, then it becomes easier to, to have, I think, more sympathy and more empathy for young people who are trying to define themselves and their lives outside of work. It's not sort of simply bucking against the system. There's a lot of kind of, um, I think from older um, generations, a lot of um, dismissiveness around sort of these these post work ideas, and I think taking this the longer view and understanding work as just one, just another institution that's kind of crumbling all around us, um, that we can see that these issues are really pressing and that are actually connected to the other the other kinds of institutions that are crumbling and that folks used to be using to make sense of their life. And so it seems, on the one hand, for Gen Zers a really difficult moment where there's nothing to grab hold, to, to, um, to grab hold of. But on the other hand, there's, there's this real kind of, um, a lot of my field work has recently has shown there's, there's a real um, passion, for lack of a better word, um, about making things new and sort of finding what the new institutions might be. And it's a more sort of modest institution building, a modest investment in thinking about what are the pillars that are going to give my life meaning and how might work be one of those? How might it not be working one of those? Or how might work be remade so that it can provide that kind of um, community and autonomy that Jillian was talking about earlier as sort of the core need uh, for what people want out of work? 
And are you seeing anything in particular with Gen Z? You know, these sort of pillars as you're speaking about them that are taking the place of work? I mean, I wouldn't say there's, yeah, not anything sort of taking the place of work, but I I do feel that we see um, a real, a real sort of diffidence about joining the rat race, about the good life. Defining the good, the good life is no longer merely about having the job, having the success, having the the um, signs of achievement. It can be all those things, but still be lacking. And there's still there's that there's a, a real desire to kind of to define what the good life is for themselves apart from work. And I think it's very much an ongoing process. And I think that um, as of yet, there are no sort of pillars rising in the uh, on the horizon. So very interesting work from both you. It would be one of many papers that are very interesting at at the conference and presentations and papers and you know all the various formats. So, uh, is there anything that you're really looking forward to at this year's conference? Any you know any again presentations, papers you want to see, or is it just being back in person? Um, it's definitely being back in person about that, like good life, right? Being around collaborators and, and co-conspirators and people who understand this. And, um, that's really exciting. And honestly, for me, meet in person, my collaborator, I have been working on this paper that we have been writing and I have never met Lauren in person. We have only talked over the phone. And so being able to see who this human being is in real life is a, one of the biggest joys that I have right now because we've been working so closely for over a year on this topic. So being able to share that with others, to talk about how we can look to ethnography for this sense of going past resiliency, I think is very exciting. And then actually seeing people together, I think I'm looking forward to that the most. And Todd? Yeah, no, that's that, that uh, certainly something that interests me and is this being my first conference um, it will be... Um, yeah, weird to, uh, to to be there in person and see they're actually more epic is more than just papers. They're downloadable and videos that one can watch online. I think a couple of the um, the tutorials really caught my eye. And uh, Jillian, I think that maybe I, I might have more to talk to you about. And one of the ones that did catch my eye was, was thinking about um, um, responsible um, AI design, but also thinking if there's there's a tutorial on um, on uh, Ethno futures that I found seems really interesting to me, and I'm, I'm interested in thinking about the relationship uh, between ethnography and uh, forecasting and foresight. It seems to be um, again back to the questions of scale and how to scale up the kind of ethnographic insights that that are sort of the bread and butter of, of the epic community, and sort of project outwards, but project outwards from a space that's not um, the traditional, um, not the traditional intellectual tools, but actually sort of building from from, from the margins out. It's really exciting to me. Well, it should be a good year with everybody back. Um, Thanks for coming on the podcast. Uh, We really appreciate you taking the time to hear about your work and uh, hope to uh, see you all soon. Of course. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you. Thanks for listening. And be sure to check out the Epic website at epicpeople.org and follow, subscribe, and share to help us build some anticipation for this year's conference being held in Amsterdam from October 9th through the 12th. I'm your host, Maddox. Until next time.